Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. We've reached the end of 2023. To celebrate, I'll be reviewing some of my favorite moments from this year's episodes. There are so many that this will have to be a two-parter. Part 1 will highlight episodes 129 through 144, and next week, 145 through 158. Since we started working on this podcast almost four years ago, which is unbelievable to say out loud, We've brought on a wide range of guests, including prominent self-advocates such as Dr. Temple Grandin, Dr. Stephen Shore, Dr. Carrie Magro, Rachel Barcelona, and Thomas Island. Parents like Tiffany Hammond and Bobby Rubio, some of our Global Autism Project partners such as Sangeeta Jain from India and Ivas Chomjisha from Rwanda, and other professionals in the field such as Michelle Garcia Winner from Social Thinking and Harold Nearland from Autism Europe. If you've been listening to our podcast for a while, this 2023 recap will bring you back to the heartfelt stories we've been hearing from our guests. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. This episode will give you a good idea of what Autism Knows No Borders is all about. In this episode, discover what's possible when we learn together. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you the Global Autism Community. Episode 129 featured our then-cohort of Global Autism Community moderators, self-advocates Mary Johnston, Michelle Vinokurov, and Corbin Havener. The team usually meets to discuss the community's monthly theme and decide which subtopics they will post about each week. Throughout each month, the moderators take turns monitoring posts to ensure that our online space remains safe and respectful. If you're interested in developing your leadership skills, expanding your network as an advocate, and stepping outside of your comfort zone, join the community today at community.globalautismproject.org and send me a private message. In these next clips, Mary, Michelle, and Corbin talk about what they enjoyed about their role as moderators. I'd say that the thing that I really enjoyed the most was probably connecting with people in the comments. And when we posted about the subtopics like swimming safety or Halloween for autistic kids or things like that, I'd talk about like my experience and, you know, Corbin or Michelle or anyone else could talk about their experience as well. And we could kind of create like different things that we could talk about in the upcoming meeting. Mm -hmm. And we could all just kind of like bond over how we grew up as autistics and stuff, which was fun. I would say like, have fun with it, branch out to different people, try new things and, you know, jump outside your comfort zone. Like for one time I actually hosted a round table. I never thought I would do something like that, but I actually had fun doing it. It was something new. It was something different. So don't be afraid to try new things and experiment a little bit and kind of see what you like, because maybe one day it could be a job or like a fun little blog on the side and you never know. Through the roundtables, through the online discussions and everything that we had on the online community, it was just so great, like seeing the amount of engagement from members and like really connecting in such a deeper level. And the fact that I love that, as Mary said, like with Mary and Corbin, like we got to bond and everything and definitely became friends through this experience as being moderators. So I I really have enjoyed the experience and I hope that more people will will take on the opportunity because you will really develop a lot of skills, even social skills too. Like you're working with other people, teamwork, leadership, you name it. So 
this is a good start for those that want to have that experience or even just to even volunteer too. Like if you have a, a passion for like with advocacy and everything, this is where to do it. One thing that was sort of a uh, driver for for me um, was, you know, getting uh, in into this community and, you know, um, just to be, to be in a mo- moderator role is when you engage with discussion, you definitely, you know, learn a lot more things. I'm definitely, you know, a promoter of like autistic led advocacy. And one of the things is, you know, I was, you know, a, a lot of the first perspectives that I would usually get would, would be like more the ASAN things. And obviously one of the things is, you know, I've had, I've certainly nuanced, you know, my view on ABA, especially given the fact that it's accessible. So voices in the community, like, you know, Brian Middleton and really um, looking for the neurodiverse diversity affirming approach has given me, you know, a great perspective on, you know, moving the dialogue forward. In episode 130, we brought you Kaylin Partlow, an autistic self-advocate and registered behavior technician. She appeared on the second season of the Netflix reality series, Love on the Spectrum. Here's Kaylin talking about how she advocates for appropriate goals for her clients. One thing that I really kind of advocate for, both online as well as, you know, at my work, is prioritizing goals that are going to help remove barriers that the clients are facing today. So this is a hill I will die on. Figures of speech for elementary age learners. Understanding figures of speech is not going to revolutionize the way that they're socializing with their peer group. It's just not. Especially some of the phrases that we're continuing to teach, you know, it's raining cats and dogs, or she put her foot in her mouth. First of all, people don't use those anymore. (laughs) Second of all, it's a colossal waste of time. The barriers that they're facing are, you know, they might have difficulty gaining attention. They might have difficulty, you know, compromise or negotiation or conflict resolution. Figures of speech is not the place that we need to be putting our time into. So advocating for goals that, you know, help them kind of make connections and remove those barriers in their life today, not later down the road, is something that's really important. Episode 131 showcased our Global Autism Project partner site, Asha, from Bangalore, India. Asha means hope in their local language, Kannada, and it also stands for Academy for Severe Handicaps and Autism. For over 20 years, the Global Autism Project has been providing sustainable clinical, administrative, and leadership training to autism centers around the world seeking guidance. Asha is one of them, and we have been partners since 2018. In this clip, Asha founder and director Jayshree Ramesh talks about teaching Indian culture through art, music, and dance. Yeah, basically, see, India stems from there. It's a culture-rich society. And uh, all of these cultural activities help bring people together. They bind people together. And unfortunately, what is happening in this age of globalization and family structure breaking down and more urbanization, uh, families are smaller. So they are not getting together as often as we did when we were growing up. Mm. And uh, one way, especially for our children, is if we don't expose them to different spaces, different activities and you know different means. How can we expect them to manage as they get older? Mm. And since it's so much in us already, you know, visiting a temple uh, and we have so many festivals, yeah. you know, especially starting from about August till October, you know, there's so many things. And each one, of course, the broader perspective is of course you're, you're seeking blessings of the universe to do whatever you're doing. That is the way. But all of them bring in so much color, so much food, music, you know, dance. So I feel, you know, otherwise we get so much into just understanding autism and getting, you know, down and saying, how are we going to manage the children's behavior? And There's no life. Mm. So we are telling parents, get together. Yeah. Have fun. 
when you have fun, there is more energy and your children can feel it, they can see it and you feel that you're not alone yeah. in any of this. There's always somebody to support you. So we encourage participation of parents everywhere. Uh, Diwali was one. Uh, we did it even before Diwali, there was another one where parents were involved. And now we will do one for Christmas too. Mm. So, you know, with the kids. But at the back of everything, you know, the teacher would have done some lessons on what to expect and what it is about and children do artwork, you know, based on that event. And so there is learning, you know, happening and they see this in the environment. Mm-hmm. Like Diwali in every household, you will see them lighting lamps and making the sweets and stuff. So the children can, you know, understand what is going on. So this is like a training ground. Yeah. Yeah. And less stress for the families because they all come together and have some fun. In episode 132, I was joined by our Skill Corps volunteers who visited ASHA, the autism center highlighted in the previous clip. Our Skill Corps program is an opportunity for self-advocates and professionals to travel to our international partner sites and collaborate with their local teachers and therapists. Here is Brenda Kanas and Andrea Engels discussing moments from the trip that inspired them, as well as Giselle Figueroa, Renee Lajoy, and Caitlin Cannon sharing how they had grown personally from going on their skill core trip. Visualizing and, and having purpose, I think that that was the main thing for me for this trip. Knowing that, that you can make an impact and not limiting yourself also. Like I mentioned before about the speaking in public and, and you know, my fear for that and Sometimes we limit ourselves so much and those fears don't let us do what what we are meant to do, what we are capable of doing. And overcoming those fears opens up so many doors and so many opportunities. That was amazing for me, like getting out of my comfort zone and, and, you know, going in a trip with people I didn't know and, and everything that the whole experience was amazing it was more than what I expected to be and I grew so much out of it I I took so many amazing things out of it of every single thing in this trip of of you know the people I was able to share with all of you guys we're all different people, right? With with different personalities. And, and that was amazing for me. Because when people, even when I came home, people were like, how was India? And I would have like no idea how to say it. Like you can't even put it into words. And it sounds so cliche, but I'm like, it was great. I stayed in a hostel with like four other people that I don't know. And we had one bathroom. We had a squeegee to the floor after. And there after we showered. Um, and they were like, what? <laughs> like, it was amazing. I think just being outside of my comfort zone and pushing myself a little more was a great experience that I brought back with me. And I guess just adapting to the change and it took a few days, but I I think we were kind of all able to really adjust to the changes, which was a really cool experience. Yeah. And I saw a kind of transformation in you also, like throughout the trip, just from the first day at the center when I remember you were feeling really nervous and overcoming that and being put in other random, unknown, uncertain situations and just being able to handle it like with confidence. So I hope you see that for yourself too. Just all the conversations that a lot of us had about our workplace and everything and kind of taking some of these leadership skills that I think that I've been able to acquire a little bit better over the trip, um, kind of generalizing that in a different way and really started to advocate for myself at my job and, you know, let my supervisor and my boss know just when things are too much right now, what we can do to change that because, you know, there are so many clients that need served and I was at like the top end of my hours and, you know, I don't mind having a lot of hours, but I want to make sure that all of the clients are getting the best of my services And so just really being able to kind of stand up for myself and really talk about it and really kind of bring that around to the people that can help me with that at my company. And we actually did come up with a solution this week about all of that. So that was pretty awesome. Oh, great. I really appreciate the conversation that I had with one of the parents of the adult students they had. So she shared with me how she was first living out here in San Francisco, California, and she was 
attempted to get her daughter diagnosed. And this was like at least 30 years ago. And she wasn't having a lot of luck here in the United States. Um, and things weren't moving as fast as she wanted them to move. So she made the, the choice to move back to India and get her diagnosed there. And um, with the right resources, she was able to kind of expedite the diagnoses. And she chose to keep her in India because she knew that she would need more socialization and she thought she can create more of those opportunities in India as opposed to like being here in the United States. And that really just inspired me because we're in the United States. We're supposed to have access, easy access for all of these resources. And it's not always made available, especially to minority families. And I'm, I'm running across that living in a Hispanic community where a lot of families don't know what's available and don't know how to access and tap into those resources. So it really inspired me on that end and just making sure that my families are aware of the possibilities out in our community and just in the United States in general and in our state. It also inspired me because the daughter is now in her 30s and she's living her best life. She is doing program coding, working at a, I don't know, at her job, her office. And it's pretty neat because she takes her on like concerts and she goes to pubs with friends. And these are the things that a lot of us take for granted, but this individual has autism and she's a program coordinator and her mom made all of that possible. Her mom didn't stop fighting. So she can do it in India where they have less resources and tools. Then I know that it's possible for my families here, especially working with the, the adults. So it's, it was really inspiring and made me really reflect and think about how I can create that for my families here bring that back home. We were invited to the Diwali festival that the school hosted for the families or I think like older families and like um, the employees and everything. And then the students were also invited. And then they had different things on the stage, different dancing. And then they invited everyone up to dance. Yeah, there were some professional dancers performing, and I think some parents were singing too. Yeah, it was great. The Diwali uh, festival is a festival of light, so it I think it's symbolized by candles. And so we got to light some candles, and they did some artwork on the floor with like this colored sand to make some shapes. And yeah, that was super cool. That was probably one of my highlights of the whole trip that night. Episode 133 was a Global Autism Community Roundtable about transitioning into college, hosted by community moderator Liz Castillo. Listen to autistic self-advocate Andrew Bennett and Liz share some of their ideas about transitioning during this important stage in many people's lives. If I can comment on my own experience as a 23-year-old college student, living on my own for the first time was a little bit easier to make a logical step when I first went to college because it was a little bit more convenient. I was right next door to it. I also was at a point where it wasn't feasible for my, me and my parents to live together anymore for a couple of practical considerations. So we set it up that way so that I would need to take that step forward and live on my own and I lived by myself. I've always lived by myself since I moved out of my parents' house. But I also had to consider some things that were just easy for me because I never had to do them myself, such as laundry, self-care, hygiene, and cooking. So knowing that these things are well in place allows parents and the individual themselves to be more comfortable with being independent. In my case, I depended in the first year or so, sometimes leftovers that my parents would make if they did, they did barbecue. And so I would know how to just whip up some sandwiches until I started to become more comfortable cooking different types of meals to the point where now I cook a great deal of stuff. And food being one of the absolute most essential things for human survival, it's probably one of the first considerations. But 
being able to get out and be mobile is important as well. I had a martial arts community that I hung out with as I was training for almost of the 2010s. So I had a social life in that dimension. I had church community that I spent time with. And all of those have expanded through the late 2010s and into the 2020s as well. So it's allowed me to have a full social life outside of where I came from. And I just never found that I was interested in having a roommate. And I've thought about it a couple of times in the last couple of years now that I'm at a place where I feel that my interpersonal skills are strong enough that I could do that. Most of the time, though, when it's been a thought in my head, that particular opportunity didn't work out. And then I think later, you know what, I'm okay the way that I am. And some people will choose to just live on their own because that's something that they're used to. They're very independent and they don't like people messing with their routines. So, so that's the way that I just operate right now. I'm just so used to it that like, if I decide to live with somebody in the future, it could be for practical reasons, or I feel like it would advance my interpersonal skills or be a great experience. Or I decide to get married and I live with somebody. I mean, that could be the first time. I'm just now at a place where I'm not worried about it. I've just seen that I've grown in enough ways as to see that I'm content where I am, but open to growing. And I think that's where everybody but should I think be. It's important. Like if someone is coming up on that decision, make a list, make a list of all the things you absolutely need to have to make yourself successful. So maybe you know that you need that peace and quiet. And maybe you do want to live with someone, but you need to make sure that you have that peace and quiet for yourself to reset. Are you going to be able to find a roommate who meets that, you know, expectation for you? And just going into it, like very aware of what your needs are so that your living situation doesn't also become another chore on top of this huge thing of going to college. Because that's a huge thing for anyone. As Corbin was saying, it's universal. Um, And I think it's really important that you take the time to be aware of what your needs are in your living situation so that your living situation could be where where it's a place you come for refuge. It's a place where you get rest, you reset, you let down all your guards and can study efficiently and focus and reset. Stefan Guidon came on the show for episode 134. Stefan is an autistic self-advocate and the senior branch engagement officer and project lead at the National Autistic Society, an organization dedicated to creating a world that works for autistic people and also the largest autism charity in the UK. Here's Stefan discussing what makes a successful peer group. A lot of the work was organic. You know, the result was those people getting together. Well, what's really interesting is what they talk about when they're together. You know, 20 people who don't know each other from Adam, the one thing they've got in common that they, you know, they're all autistic. And, you know, you've got anyone from like 25 to the oldest group attendee we've ever had was uh, 75 twin sisters. And they still find common ground and things to talk about. That's another mm-hmm. thing I've learned. Even when you hit 75, you still have a special interest, which is amazing. <laughs> you know, and you watch, all, you watch those like 20 unknown people who didn't know each other at all. And they, they, they're eating together and they're laughing together. And they talk about, the diagnosis, they talk about their interest, about their cats and their dogs. Sometimes they talk about their children if they have some. You know, it's you looks perfectly normal. You know, you look at it and it's like, this is amazing. I don't know why I should be so amazed, but it's just amazing. And you realize that, you know, those guys have never done something like that, never. In episode 135, we brought Michelle Garcia Winner on the show a globally recognized thought leader, author, speaker, and social cognitive therapist, Michelle is the founder and CEO of Social Thinking, a company devoted to helping individuals gain stronger social awareness and social functioning skills through the social thinking methodology. This is Michelle describing so-called small talk in social situations. I think it's important that we don't think of autistic people as 
folks who need to behave solely, that autistic people are very sensitive to how other people are behaving as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Especially the type that we're talking about in this podcast. It's not just people are judgmental about them. They're judgmental. They should be. We're humans. We should be judgmental. This helps us to stay safe. It helps us to meet our own goals of connecting with people that we like for no clearly definable reasons. And so to really help them be the judges rather than serve as the people who are judged is a turning point in helping them because they're so used to being judged and they don't like how people are thinking about them. Flip roles and have them be the judges. Mm-hmm. Who do they like? Why do they like it? What kind of small talk? You know, like what kind of person would they be willing to do this annoying small talk with and is the first step in relationship building? Episode 136 featured Harold Nierland, the president of Autism Europe. This international association's main objective is to advance the rights of autistic people and their families and to help them improve their quality of life. Harold is also a father of a young autistic woman. Here is Harold sharing his views on autism and one key element of Autism Europe's mission. When I speak about autism, I'm I'm sort of like you go through what it is and all of what the diagnostic manual says and this and that. And at one point you say, okay, now you know what autism is, so let's forget it. Because it isn't interesting what autism is. What's interesting is the person. What does that person need? How do you treat that person? How do you help her? The moment you put a the label autism on something, on somebody, I'm afraid that it triggers so many preconceived notions. People has this image in their head of what this thing is. And it's it's like, okay, you fit into this box, but if there's one thing autism never does, is fit into a box. The most important one, in, at least in my mind, is the fact that any help, any service has to be evidence-based. Right. Yeah. And that is essential that we get out because, as I said, for somebody who get their diagnosis first, they'll start looking for any type of help. And in many ways, we've been our worst enemy in the way that we've been talking about interventions. We've been talking about it. There was a while where we talked about curing autism. Yeah. That was never the intention, but it's it's actually almost humorous that a society that deals with people that have communicative uh, difficulties never learn to be clearer on what we need to do and insist on using language that confuses people. What we're seeing more and more is that we're getting more and more focused on the individual person and not all of this we have to fix this and we have to fix that. And when we're looking at therapies, is it to help somebody or is it to mask the uh, traits of autism? Right. You're not trying to change anybody. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that is something that needs to be very clear. You're trying to help people. You're not trying to change them. Don Barclay joined us in episode 137. Don has dedicated over 30 years to working in different areas of the travel industry. Her book, Traveling Different, Vacation Strategies for Parents of the Anxious, the Inflexible, and the Neurodiverse, offers helpful tips to help soothe children's travel anxieties. In this clip, Don talks about building travel itineraries that include special interests. I also strongly recommend building a trip around a child's pacing. So you're not doing everything all at once. You maybe go to one place instead of six and then spend the afternoon by the pool or in front of the TV to create, you know, some decompression time for your child and also building the trip around the child's special interests. If they're in love with dinosaurs, why aren't you going to a place where they can go to a dinosaur museum or see fossils or, Mm. you know, why not make it a really memorable trip for everybody? And I think if you're dedicating the trip 
to revolve around a child's special interest, they're going to be able to deal perhaps better with the more mundane aspects of the trip because they have something to look forward to. Or, right, or that can playground outside. You know what your child needs, so and you know your child's schedule. So, how can you best organize that trip to follow their stick as closely as you can to the schedule that they are used to, or explain ahead of time that this is a vacation and the schedule is going to be kind of different? But you can create a visual schedule and go over it time and time again. Don't spring the trip on the child. You know, start your preparation as far in advance as you can, so the child is aware of what's going on. In episode 138, I spoke with certified speech-language pathologist Lenora Edwards. With over 10 years of experience treating children and adults, Lenora is the Chief Knowledge Officer at Better Speech, a U.S.-based online service provider with 150 speech therapists working with individuals of all ages. Here's Lenora describing how to encourage families to use AAC, or Alternative Augmentative Communication, with their autistic loved ones. If I'm anticipating your wants and needs, you likely will have to express very little to me because I will know when you want juice. I will know when you want to go to the bathroom. I will know when you want your book. I can do that as the caregiver. I can anticipate those wants and needs. I've studied your cues so well at this point. I can read them inside and out. So you, as the receiver of this very attentive care, You have no need to communicate because somebody is doing everything that you need. Once we put that responsibility back on that individual and say, okay, well, let's, let's try a device. They then start to think, oh, okay, well, now I have, somebody's not anticipating everything. Now I have to get what I want. And they're encouraged to use their device. And as it becomes more functional for them, as things start to build and they start to learn and they start to grow, they start to recognize They have a voice. They can express themselves and they can express themselves using the device. Now more language is being occurred because they're more language is occurring. They're actually hearing the device talk. And now they're starting to talk more because of all these other factors. And it's a complete shift. Global Autism Project CEO, Molly Ola Pinney, and our head of university and training programs, Ann Byrne, came back on the show for episode 139. We discussed responsive skills training, a curriculum that we've developed for entry-level autism service providers. RST teaches the required skills for the RBT, IBT, and ABAT credentials. In these clips, we talk about why we decided to create RST, the importance of listening to autistic voices, and the process of co-creating the coursework with a committee of contributors, including self-advocates, family members, and service providers. Well, I think the biggest thing that we wanted to do is we wanted to really provide context around what is ABA, who is this community, what are their thoughts? I think there's so much for us to learn. And, you know, we've worked internationally for 20 years, and the opportunities internationally have increased exponentially. That being said, You can still go into a community. I was on a call a couple of days ago with a parent in a country who said, people here do not know what autism is. The locally accepted belief is that the children are possessed, that they have a curse put on them. And so if you're working within that context locally, and then you're going online and all you're finding is this kind of like rigid, strict sort of compliance-based ABA, you're kind of going like, what are my options? What do I do next? And oh, this is a problem. And so I think, you know, with this training, as Anne said, with those entry-level professionals, and part of our plan is to make this available to parents and professionals around the world so that they just understand autism from another context. And importantly, the perspective of the autistic community. What is happening a lot of the time is that they're involved at the entry level and it's more like job training, like, okay, do this thing, get this done. Here's how you do it, go. And not a lot of thoughtful process about why we're doing what we're doing, what the needs of the community are. And, you know, we don't use punishment. Why don't we use punishment? Or ABA is often talked about as an autism treatment. What does that mean? If you're neurotypical and you're working with someone with autism, what does that mean? And what does it mean to be neurodiversity affirming? Having those conversations at the entry level means that 
the paraprofessionals are going to be in better positions to advocate. They're going to be in better positions to make good decisions because they're spending most of the time with the client. And what's happening in the field is a lot of the people who go into the field and are put in difficult positions right away, either because behavior analysts aren't neurodiversity affirming and want to have programming that is more curative in nature or uses more aversives or doesn't acknowledge the dignity of the individual, instead of being really fierce advocates, those RBTs quit and leave the field because that's their experience of what applied behavior analysis is. They say, this is applied behavior analysis and all the autistic self-advocates are saying this is what applied behavior analysis is and I'm getting confirmation that they're correct and so I'm out. And that's a tremendous loss for our field. I want those folks back in our field. I want them advocating because if they leave our field, then that is what our field is. Hmm. So teaching people from the entry level position, you know, work kinder, not harder. I started as a line therapist. And everyone who was part of the committee, like you said, there was a reason they were part of the project. There was, for many of them, something very personal. And Mm. so, you know, the committee consisted of, yes, self-advocates, but also family members, parents, and siblings Mm -hmm. whose loved ones went through ABA and, you know, they had some, some things they wanted to change about it. And also we had different professionals. So not only BCBAs, we had SLPs, occupational therapists, transition specialists. So I think that's another thing that makes this training really special is that it wasn't just BCBAs and self-advocates. You have this whole, like anyone who's connected to autism, really. And so with this committee of such a diverse range of people and contributors, we were able to bring in their lived experiences. So Anne, you're, you know, the brains behind the the whole technical application part, and you were able to incorporate everyone's feedback. And the end result is now six modules of this training that will allow people to sit for the RBT exam, the ABAT exam, and the IBT exam, all those entry-level positions. And also what's included in the training is this module, and they're intertwined and placed between the theory part, but these conversations with our contributors. And Mm -hmm. from here, people can listen and get that firsthand experience of what it's like to have that sensory overload. We have a conversation about that to supplement the theory that you're teaching. There's a roundtable conversation from parents talking about how to empower parents in doing parent coaching, how to bridge that gap between professionals and family members. There's another roundtable about mental health, about collaboration, about what autism looks like across the lifespan. So really, one of our other goals with RST is to help that practitioner, that person who is providing these services, look at the person that they're working with as a person, holistically, Mm -hmm. to give them a more well-rounded view of what they're experiencing, what their life is going to be like in five years, 10 years. We also talk about, you know, the elderly population. Right. So yeah, this is, you know, something we're, we're so excited about. Like this is, I feel like years and years of, as Molly said, love and, and sweat and tears that have been poured into this curriculum that we're now able to offer the public. And we're just thrilled. Episode 140 was a special episode celebrating three years of the podcast and two years of our global autism community. We also introduced our next cohort of community moderators. Here are self-advocates Andrew Bennett, Cassidy Hooper, and Stefan Guidon, and SkillCore alum Corey Taylor, explaining why they were excited to join the moderator team. I joined a team of moderators at the Global Autism Community to further my networking and exploring neurodiverse community issues with other autistics with a growth mindset. 
we've all enhanced each other's understanding of what it means to be different and yet accepted as we are. I envision this community to be a forum where we start from the very fundamentals and build a way of being and living, but go beyond our local communities to be a part of the global movement that inspires change and builds community wherever you are. You should join the global autism community because you have something you can accomplish in whatever place and space you occupy in the world. Whatever you can do, whoever you know, it can be beneficial to someone's experience. You no doubt by now have met an autistic person. And if you're listening to this right now, we hope you see their value is equal to all the rest of us. But this knowing needs to be translated to intentional action to bring change into society. You today can cease playing small and be part of something bigger than yourself. Welcome to Global Autism Community, where autism knows no borders. The reason why I decided to join the moderator team for the Global Autism Community is because I love hearing different perspectives on what affects the autism community. And I get to make lifelong friendships and I get to hear from different autistic self-advocates and professionals in the field of autism to hear their perspectives. And another reason is that I love getting to connect with others in the community. What I really enjoyed about participating to the online space is hearing everybody's opinions experiences, sharing their thought and their lives with the rest of the community. I decided to join the moderator team because I just want to find any way possible to be part of the global autism community. It's something that I've done before. And again, it's just great to see all the posts and all this energy on the, on the platform. That's a great thing, I think. I think my vision for the global autism community is an organization that has reached literally all over the world and become really a source of authority when it comes to, you know, sharing autism knowledge and, and putting good practice into place. I think if I had to explain why someone should join the community, it would be because I think autistic people, wherever they are in the world, can feel quite isolated from the rest of the autistic community. And I think it's great to have a platform like the Global Autism Community and Autism Knows No Borders. So the autistic community feels that they are not alone, that there are also people, plenty of them, which they can reach out to and talk about the experience, the change they would like to see and the change that they can make as well. What I've gotten out of this online space is a different perspective. And that's why I decided to join the moderator team. In this role, I'm able to not only continue growing in my understanding of this community, but hopefully inspire others to join as well. My vision for the global autism community is to create a safe space online where anyone can share their experiences openly without judgment and feel connected to others. I believe that if more people join this community, then there would be more education and greater acceptance. If you've been thinking about joining our community, you should take the leap and do it today. In episode 141, we hosted another Global Autism Community Roundtable discussion. That month's theme was Awareness to Acceptance. Here are self-advocate and professional wrestler Stephanie DeKramer and self-advocate and mother Sarah Bradford discussing their personal journeys of disclosing their autism. A time recently for me was at a wrestling show. There was a new promotion called Brawl here in the UK. and I remember there was this big buff guy, like a big wrestler dude, and he looked he looked so like he had all his stuff together. He, you know, he looked like really on it. And then we were chatting right at the end because he was asking me questions when I was planning my match. And I, you know, when you're like, oh, I can't talk about that because you're in like you can't multitask, right? So I did that. And then after the match, I came up to him. I was like, sorry if I was brushing you off. I just I can't switch between it. And he said, oh, I totally get it. Sometimes I get the same with sensory stuff. And I was like, sensory stuff? You mean like sensory overload? He's like, yeah, yeah. And then it's like, we're looking at each other. I was like, are you on the spectrum? And he's like, hey, hey. It was like, it was really fun. And I wouldn't have thought someone that was like top of the locker room, like someone that looked that legit could also be on the spectrum. 
And then two other people in the locker room, two other girls, also said they just got diagnosed literally like two months ago. So that was, yeah, I've always kind of kept the autism and the professional side in terms of like my office job. You know, data, I've got like the office job where I'm like Stephanie and then like the wrestling, I've never really been out. But like, so to answer the question, second question, when did you accept yourself? Like literally like a month ago, I put loads of sunflowers on my Instagram bio and I put autistic athlete as the very first line. So you, yeah, which like to me, I've never been out on my wrestling page, but now it says Kiara underscore wrestler. And then it says the very first line is sunflower autistic athlete. Then all the other lines have like sunflowers as the bullet point. So that's been quite a recent, like as of a month ago. So yeah. That's amazing. I'm just newly diagnosed, but I also started my journey with my son like a decade ago. And that's when I was learning and researching. And then my husband, eight years later, which I thought was such a great experience. And it not only brought us together as spouses, but I was able to really see all the accommodations that I gave my husband freely on just by knowing him and loving him and thought, oh my gosh, these are the exact same things I need to be more understanding for my son because they have so much in common with one another. And so that opened up a whole new journey of success for us as a family. And then my daughter was diagnosed afterwards, which then led me to examine my own self because her and I are alike in those ways. And then, yeah, so I, it was a, it was a four part journey for me, which has really led to, um, a unique perspective as a spouse and seeing how we, you know, related in a almost 20 year relationship to raising children. So it's, it's been a really neat experience. And I mean, I actually disclosed prior to getting my diagnosis here on a round table that hey guys, I think I'm autistic and I'm going to go get tested. And so it was kind of like, this is my home and my landing base for that. So I appreciate that. Episode 142 featured autistic self-advocate and public speaker, Ben Hartranft and his mother, Sandy Hartranft. In these clips, Ben offers advice for autistic people looking for employment and Sandy explains what she's learned about motherhood that she wished she knew sooner. I don't think people want to hire people. You know, the employer is like, I don't say it. I know how to say it. Um, it's like, they don't know how to handle the situation. They don't know how they're going to handle the job. And they're just afraid. And that's when I come in and say, look, don't be afraid to hire them. Just do it. Because people are working for jobs. And I think you should just hire more people with special needs. Yeah, I think some of the interview process is really daunting too. So when the Eagles did their interview, it was all virtual and they would read a question and then gave him time to think. So he didn't push the button to record his answer until he had primed an answer. So that was huge because you need that extra minute. Sometimes we have autism to think, what was the question and how do I want to answer this? And then he would record the answer and then they would move on to the next question. A company where my husband works, they do their interviews over Lego robotics. So it's a, a, a tech company, but there's no like, let's sit down and look eye to eye. They're doing a shared task that's yeah. really enjoyed and they get to know the person that way. And so sometimes just even getting past the interview is, is you know, needs to be done a different way. And that's why I think, I'm more companies need that like SAP. And that's why I think I would love to talk with the Eagles and say, look, I have some ideas for you guys for the future. And I think it'd be really cool to actually work on different interview skills. Like how do we do this? Like if we're hiring more people with autism working in your job. And people with autism are very faithful. Right? They show up on time. They're very punctual. They're rule followers. So they bring a lot of really good skill sets to to work. You know, people just need to really see them in, in a valuable way, I think. One of the teachers just said to me, and I, I wish I had learned this a lot earlier, that no decision is fatal because I, I tend to be a bit of a worrier. <laughs> and so every time I had to make a decision, I was like racking my brains. Like, is this the right placement? Is this the right choice? Is this the right thing to do? And she said, look, you take all the information you have, make the best decision you can and 
you know, if it's not the right one, you make a new one when you can. And that was freeing because I, I, you only have what you have to work with. So that was one thing. And the second one, I just want anybody who's listening that's starting on their journey, this is not your fault. There's no room for guilt and blame with any mm-hmm. of this, right? Because I spent a lot of time like, what did I do? Is it something during my pregnancy? You know, what happened? And there really is no rhyme or reason. We really don't know what it is. You know, the whole thing with neurodiversity and, and just that kind of whole spectrum, yeah. you know, it isn't that an, an event occurred. It's just who he is. Mm-hmm. And right. so loving him and accepting him for that. And I think the hardest thing along the way was making sure we challenged him, but not frustrated him. And where that line is, is really hard, right? I, I don't want to give up too soon, but I don't want to frustrate him past what he's capable of. Mm. But knowing where that line is, is uh, it's a difficult find. In episode 143, I was joined by two behavior analysts, Liz Lefebvre and Amy Evans. Both Liz and Amy are specialists in precision teaching, fluency-based instruction, instructional design, and ascent-based treatment. They're also the co-founders of Octave, an organization dedicated to improving skill sets of behavior analysts, teachers, and instructional designers. Here's Liz and Amy talking about ascent-based treatment and why most practitioners should move away from, quote, traditional ABA and undo the training that they might have undergone. There is the way we structure the programming and the way we select goals for our learners, that's definitely important. We want to make sure we're selecting things that our learners want to learn, things that are oriented to their values, things that are oriented to keeping them safe, of course, and then also promoting autonomy. So that's really the focus of ascent-based treatment is how do we set up from the beginning our programming to meet those criteria? Then as we're working with learners, how are we respecting their autonomy in honoring their what we call assent withdrawal. So assent meaning they are showing with their behavior that they want to be there. And then assent withdrawal being they're showing us in some way, like Amy was mentioning, that they don't want to be there. And that can be very subtle or it can be really clear. And that when they show us that they don't want to be there, we listen and we stop what we're doing and we change it. And we try to figure out a different way to do it or we evaluate whether or not it's something that's actually important to them and to their in their world. Of course, we measure. We measure all of those things with it and we make database decisions on, you know, the learner told me three times in a row they don't like this. Well, that's a pretty clear message. We need to not do it that way anymore or we need to not do it at all anymore, depending on what the situation is. And then also, you know, making sure we have boundaries set up that we're teaching our learners to have their own boundaries and teaching them to negotiate but also teaching them to respect other people's boundaries because they do have to exist in a world where we share space and we, we interact with one another. So ascent-based treatment. I have a similar story. I was trained very much when I started working with autistic individuals. I was trained very much in that same, what I'm going to call traditional way. I don't even know how we refer to it now, but I had a very similar experience where I knew something was wrong and I knew it in my bones and I felt it in my body, but I didn't for years, didn't really process it because I was told that this was what I was supposed to do. You follow through with the demand, even if it leads to, you know, a physical altercation with a six-year-old. That's just not, that's not how it needs to be. But I have hope now, and I've had this experience, I've had this conversation with so many other practitioners that a lot of us have that kind of pain and story and guilt. And I think it's time for us to channel that. What I'm finding is that most people I know in this field really want to do better. And it all comes down to, so what are our next steps? How do we kind of undo the training that we have? How do we undo the harm that we've done? Which you can't, you can't go backwards, but you can move forwards. And what I'm finding is that I think all of the work that's being done right now in ascent-based practice is kind of our guiding light because putting that in place, it's a series of questions to ask and things to look at that really help you moment to moment examine your own ableism, coercion. This is how we're going to move forward as a field and get to that point that we all feel comfortable and proud of the work that we're doing. 
Episode 144 was a Global Autism Community Roundtable about family dynamics. In the following clip, self-advocates Mary Johnston and Corbin Havener and occupational therapist and sibling Cheryl Albright discuss relationships with autistic versus non-autistic siblings, the need for parent support while transitioning from adolescence, and the importance of making plans for older adulthood. I actually really like having an autistic sibling because while I sometimes feel like I'm in her shadow with like her needs and stuff, I have someone that I can personally relate to and hang out with and we can watch like Disney movies together or we can cook together. And she's somebody who just kind of like understands my struggles in a sense. Like we can relate to feeling like ignored in society or bullied by people who just don't understand what autism is. So we can kind of relate to like the good and the bad of being on the autism spectrum. So I I think that having an autistic sibling is really nice, even though it can be like hard sometimes because growing up, we would still play together a lot when both of us were in like good boots. We would play like LPS or Webkins together or whatever. And now we just like hang out on our laptops. And I think having a neurotypical sibling, because I have kind of both experiences, I would say neurotypical siblings are kind of a lot harder for me to get along with because I don't always like understand what they're doing or what they're saying. And sometimes I feel like they don't really understand my life. Like if I get upset over something, sometimes they don't really like understand why or like how personal it is to me. So I'd say like sometimes things like that can be more difficult. Hmm. Upper hand. Yeah. You know, as far I'm, as uh, preparing I'm... me, um, a lot of it comes down to allowing me to focus on what, what that was. So the IP case conference meetings in high school were just kind of, were kind of odd ones. Cause you know, for one thing, my mom taught the school that I attended. So I was there, you know, my mom was there as I was, uh, a teacher there. And just to get proof, I recently went to my high school to get that. And a lot of it was just focused on self-advocacy. So basically, um, there are some uh, people-pleasing struggles that you know I've had similar to that of my mom. And I think I have gotten up to working towards that. And I think they allowed me to take a big part in like the planning stuff. So for example, I think for a birthday present in 2013, that was the first time I went to a Colts game. And, you know, I drove my car down there. I had that event all planned out. I knew where to park in downtown Indy. You know, I went there and just the fact that I am in charge of that kind of planning helps me at least uh, be in charge of the logistical aspects of my life. Right. Yeah, it's important to have. So my father didn't have a plan. He had his basic legal documents done, but didn't tell anybody where they were. So will, power of attorney, healthcare, surrogate, those kind of things were done. Just nobody knew where they were. My brother does have legal guardianship and... That plan was not put into place. And so when my father got sick, that was not planned. Uh, My uncle was the backup guardian who then had dementia. And so couldn't stand in a court of law and say that he can make a sound decision for anybody. And so anybody that ends up listening to this, have a conversation. Some parents don't want to. It's not really a choice. And that concludes part one of our 2023 Highlights episode. I hope this trip down memory lane left you feeling inspired to create change in your own community. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and come back next week to finish this year with part two of our Highlights. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community.
You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world. 